title of today's message, The One Who Draws Us In. The One Who Draws Us In. We'll look at what that's about. Um, okay, well, we'll look at Psalm 18 briefly, and then Mark's view, some of the thoughts from Mark's gospel, but really, um, I think I just have some main ideas about Palm Sunday that I think are drawn out of Psalm 118 and drawn out of Mark's gospel and Jesus entering on the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Whenever I come across Palm Sunday, it's becoming one of my favorite uh, Sundays, by the way, um, and I'll tell you why. One of the beautiful things about Palm Sunday is, for instance, when we read Mark's gospel, there's no exhortation to us to do anything. Well, if you notice that, uh, look for a command in Mark's gospel for us to do anything. Now, as a preacher of the gospel, I love that uh, because we tend to drift toward, uh, you know, uh, instruction, uh, moral instruction, uh, and we tend toward, well, what, what am I supposed to do with this, right? What am I supposed to do with this? And I love the idea that this text comes to us, Mark 11, where we're watching Jesus. That's all we're doing. We're just watching Jesus. And then the preacher might get really uh, nervous, like, uh, boy, you've got to do more than that. <laughs> boy, we better put together a sermon that will get these people busy with something, right? And uh, so I, the reason why Palm Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays is because it forces the preacher to just watch Jesus as well with everyone. I have to watch Jesus just like you do. And then I have to figure out, well, how is there a gospel in watching Jesus? And, of course, there really is a gospel. Uh, it's packed with all kinds of ideas when you have to just watch Jesus because he is the one who accomplishes salvation. And it's not about our moral resolve. It's not about our moral instruction. Now, that's a very important thing. Uh, and if you're new to Christianity, if you're sort of, what is this Christian thing? Um, I, I think Jesus is important, but why is he so important? If you're new with this, I want, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know that we take uh, you seriously and we want to answer your questions. And we want you to know that the Bible is about the completed work of Jesus. It's about him and not us. It's about his completing all the instructions. It's about him doing it all and us receiving the benefit of what he's done, okay? So that's, just want to make sure that's really, really clear. Now, the, another reason why I like Palm Sunday is because it is so, uh, I think, um, counter-cultural in uh, contrasting with our day and age. At least Jesus has their attention, uh, our day and age, we are scattered everywhere. And it's extremely hard to get at people's attention. Uh, I'm actually reading a book about advertising, an interesting book. It's called The Attention Merchants. And it goes way back into the history of when newspaper people started selling advertising. They figured out, wait a minute, uh, how can I make uh, some pennies off this instead of you know, going broke? And how... 
What about uh, even the history of snake oil salesmen and, and all the whole idea of how people got get, got into the business of getting our attention? It's very fascinating, fa- fascinating stuff. And so our attention, just to have your attention. Uh, I'm uh, some of you who study uh, or watch TED talks, right? Uh, the founder of those and some of those who put that together did some study, and they realized that people's attention span, the best, the best adult attention span is 18 minutes. Did you know that? Well. Uh, that's not going to regulate our sermon, let me tell you that. But, but, eighteen minutes, you know. Now, um, that, that I think that's even amazing, right? And uh, we're, we're, we're we're used to thirty second or even less thirty second less sound bites. So I think it's fascinating. Palm Sunday, the gospel accounts. Jesus has everyone's attention. At least at some level, there's there's something remarkable going on. Now, one of my favorite. Uh, paintings of all time, and I'm trying to get a hold of this in, in a large, more of a large painting. Maybe we have, we have it in the foyer of the church for a while. <clears throat> it is a, a painting by a uh, northern European gentleman named James Enzor, a Belgian. Uh, and the name of the painting is called Jesus' Entry into Brussels, in 1889, that's the name of the painting. Now, can you imagine? Okay, so uh, just so you know, the Bible doesn't have Jesus entering Brussels, so, so we get that straight. So, uh, and I'm, I think he uh, painted this in 1889. I think that's when the date is. So this is the original is in the in the Getty Museum in, outside of Los Angeles. And uh, I really want to—I want to see the original. Um, now I'm looking at it as I'm talking to you here, and so I—you uh, can come up uh, or see me afterwards. It might be a little distracting if I pass this around because I've only got 18 minutes. So, <laughs> so, um, but you need to see this if you haven't seen it. Jesus entering Brussels in 1889. First of all, you can barely see him. He's in the middle of a crowd. There's clowns. There's military people. There's sort of strange-looking people. Everyone is looking forward in the picture. A few people looking, well, a few people looking sideways. And there's Jesus. It takes about a full minute to find him. He's on a donkey. And there he is. It's like a Mardi Gras parade. No one's noticing Jesus. This is the modern world. He's just one of many events happening in Brussels in 1889. And maybe, uh, maybe the great task of the Spirit today is just to get our attention that he would not be just one of many events in our lives in 2018 whatever city you're from. Let's pray. Lord, in this moment, uh, we ask you give us get our attention that, that Jesus would not just be part of our life, but he'd be the king, and we'd understand more fully how beautiful he is, magnificent he is, how rich he is, and that he should be honored and set apart 
Forgive us, Lord, for our distraction that we willingly participate in. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So check out that picture afterwards. All right, the one who draws us in. The one who draws us in. Jesus entering Jerusalem, I have three main points. He enters Jerusalem and he draws us in by training us in what to love. He draws us in by overwhelming us with faithfulness. And he, entering Jerusalem, he draws us in by recentering our, our hope. What do I mean by drawing us in? Uh, the heart, the heart is always captivated by something. We're always being drawn in by something. We want to be attracted to something. Glory, uh, Ted Tripp, the children's author of the author of the children's book *Shepherding a Child's Heart*, says that children are wired for glory, and uh, we are wired for glory. And the book of Hebrews highlights in chapter twelve one of the struggles of Christians. It's interesting. Hebrews twelve says, "Fix your eyes on Jesus." the author and finisher of our faith. That's one of the struggles of the Christian life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, well, why? Well, he's the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the one who can, he's the one who can manage God's providence in your life. And he is managing every event of your life. And he's beautiful. He's worth watching. He's worth having your heart captivated by him. And I think this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem is a little bit like a movie where you're driving home and it dawns on you later, wait a minute, that's what it was about. I think there were many people, sometimes we're a little bit hard on the people who were there saying Hosanna. Sometimes the preacher says, yes, you see how fickle the human heart is. They turned on him. Why? Here they are saying, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they're going to shout, uh, you know, Barabbas, and they're going to they're turn on, on this Jesus. Well, there's, there's some truth to that. I don't want to be too hard on these folks. Uh, I'm in the crowd as well. I'm, I'm, my heart would t- have turned as well. But it's like a movie or it's like a good book where you have read the book and you've finished it and you think you understood it. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. I see the whole thing now. I see the resurrection. I see him ascend to this king. Wait a minute. He always knew what was going to happen. He always was in charge. He was always, he was always the king. It was never what he looked like. It was never what he appeared to be. It was never the power he gave over to others. It was never about that. He was always in control. He was wiser than I thought. He's drawing me in. He's drawing me in with his wisdom. He's drawing me in with his cleverness. He's drawing me in with his lordship. Even though he doesn't appear to be a king at all, he really is. He's drawing me in with weakness, and I thought I wanted a, I needed a warrior. I thought I needed someone on a war horse. I thought I needed someone to be a champion. I thought I needed someone to, to show dominion over, over the political powers of, of, my, of my day or, or back then. Wait a minute. What's going on here? 
And he's training you and he's drawing you in. He's drawing you into a deeper wisdom. He's training you in what to love. He's overwhelming you with his faithfulness. And he's recentering you with hope. All right, he's training us in what to love. Do you see him, how, how, how he loves the Father's will? That's how he gets to this point in his life. Do you see him? He's training you because you're watching him obey the Father. He was always willing to obey the Father. And he's training us to love the Father's will for us. He's training us. We, we see him willingly associate with sinners in John's baptism in the early parts of the Gospels. He shows up when there's thousands of people at the Jordan River, and John, that final prophet of the old era, the Old Testament, John is there, this wild-looking man I could only imagine. This, I mean, you would think of a prophet who hasn't washed his hair in a couple of years. I mean, just craziness. John's there, and he's saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And he's got the power of, like a, of, a, of an Elijah with him and an extra measure of the Spirit. Don't mess with this guy. And people hear him, and he is, he is charged with the vision of Isaiah to, to make a straight path out of a wilderness for the Lord. And when the Lord appears, he's walking on a highway. It's smooth. The, the heart has been prepared to listen. And guess who shows up as sinners are being baptized at John's river? Jesus. And he associates with sinners. What's he doing there? And John's as curious as you and I. What, what's he doing there? And John's first comment is, uh, I need to be baptized by you. This is a, we got, there's a problem with the roles here. I'm the sinner, you're not. And Jesus says, let this be done, that all righteousness would be fulfilled. He is becoming Isaiah's suffering servant. And as the, what I imagine the waters pouring over Jesus' head, he enters into the judgment waters. The judgment waters for sinners. Meaning these waters are provided as a way, a means of escape for you to escape judgment. But you must pass through them to acknowledge you're, you're, you are guilty before a holy God. No one was baptized there as a holy person. And so they pass through the waters of judgment. It's, a, it's like... John is a kind of Moses in this picture here. The people pass through the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of, uh, that would prove to be judgment for, for the Egyptians. And of course, as, as Jesus associates with sinners in judgment, listen, the Father speaks. Now, that's a rare, that's a rare thing in the Bible. I can't think of any other places. Maybe you might know. The Father speaks. Well, the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 17. But uh, the Father speaks. What does he say? Oh, 
know, he says, upon this one, my, my benediction rests. My, my pleasing presence is upon him. He is the favored one. I am pleased with him. This is my son. And he's given the spirit as he is anointed by the spirit to do ministry. The ultimate ministry. He's to become a priest, representing the needs of his people. And you see, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem this day, he's training us by his obedience, which has always been there, but was so manifested in his three years of public ministry, his, his love for the Father's will, and he watching him, you see him humbled, and the benediction of the Father is resting upon him. Still to this day, as he enters Jerusalem, through his obedience, a new way will be opened up, a new covenant, and this pleases the Father. The final Adam is here. The one who will obey my word is, has arrived on the scene. And he's willing now to enter into judgment, and it will come Friday. He submits to the Father. And as we look just for a moment at Psalm 118, as he is serving as the Redeemer, Psalm 18 describes someone who is entering into Jerusalem. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. There's a growing sense of the writer here who wrote Psalm 118 that God is going to achieve salvation and it will take place through a coming one. And of course, Jesus is the one who achieves this salvation. He trains us to love the Father and to obey the Father. He trains us in what to love. Secondly, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he draws us in by overwhelming us with faithfulness. Here on a donkey, deserving a war horse, he draws us in. And, of course, we see him faithful. We see him in these final days of his life, treated so wretchedly. We see him faithful in his human body, even though he was deprived of dignity, suffered hunger in the trials in the wilderness for 40 days, deprivation of sleep, no doubt. He comments that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head we are overwhelmed with his faithfulness in his emotional responses to cruelty. He never lashes out. To the trials, to human failure, to human betrayal, he never seeks his own revenge. I'm asking you to see who travels to Jerusalem 
What will he achieve? What will he do for sinners? And of course, preeminently, of course, all those are important areas of faithfulness. Jesus, Galatians 4, 4, tells us that he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, and that we might be given the spirit, that we might rejoice as adopted children, children of the living God. He was faithful under every part of God's law. He obeyed all of God's commands for you. He was faithful. Isaiah 53 tells us, like a tender shoot out of dry ground. The dry ground, what, what was that? Well, the dry ground of the human nature in the disciples, in the Roman soldiers, in the corrupt justice. There was dry ground all around him. Their fickleness, and yet he grew up before the Father faithful. And notice his faithfulness in Psalm 118. Take a look at this. Verse 22, the writer of this psalm is, re, is reflecting on salvation, and they don't at all see clearly like we see clearly. They don't, not even near with, with the clarity we can see. But look at verse, look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is a New Testament theme that's picked up. It's a construction site. Some of you have done remodeling in your house. Construction site. Construction sites are messy. And, and somehow either the, the, this could be the, the, the time of the second temple being uh, constructed. Perhaps this is the time of the first uh, temple being constructed. It's kind of hard to figure out what's the timeline of Psalm 118. But apparently something vitally important to Israel is, is being constructed. In the New Testament, we'll pick up on this, that, that this, is the, this is the building of God, the people of God, the temple of God. And the one, there's a, there's a piece, of, a stone that's under some rubble, perhaps. And it's discarded. You know how building goes. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're getting some lumber and you just pick out the best boards. You, you look, you're making a brick walkway and you, that stone doesn't work. And you just, you just disdain it. You know, get, get out of here. I don't have time for you. Right. It's interesting. Uh, we remodeled our the preschool years ago, and uh, we tried to figure out what was worth keeping. Right. And so we, some of you remember this. We have a, a three compartment stainless steel sink. Right. Three compartments. So you can't just get that at, at Home Depot. Walk. You got to order that. So. So this three compartment thing, where a contractor said that's worth a thousand bucks. I said seriously. Yeah. Hang on to it. We can use it in the remodel. Okay. Well, then we got this remodel going, and there's boards everywhere, and there's drywall everywhere, and there's junk everywhere. And then we start putting the, the kitchen together, and guess what we lost? We lost this, this eight-foot-long sink. I said, how do you, I'm walking around. It's time to find the sink. I'm thinking, how, how could we lose the sink? Did, did someone come in here and steal it? Maybe they did. It's open, you know, maybe. Sure enough, under a bunch of rubble, I gave up on it. I remember someone else found it. I just gave up. I said, let's call Home Depot. And guess what? There it was. It was under a bunch of rubble. 
Someone disdained it. Probably was me, right? <laughs> right? This happens in construction, isn't it? Right? It's just this overlooked thing, right? I wonder if that's just a picture of what Jerusalem was like. For us, it's a huge week. Of course, we know it's the week of redemption. It's a big deal. But for them, it's like, oh, yeah, some would-be Messiah. Yeah, he did that donkey thing going into town, and he's cleansed the temple, and he's they got rumors about him doing miracles. He's a pretty impressive teacher, but he doesn't like the Sadducees, doesn't like the Pharisees. He's, he's saying that even the temple itself is no big deal and that he's the temple. We don't need this guy. And they unleash this disdain on him. Like a piece, of, like a stone, he just tosses it aside like, I am tired. I need to get on with my construction, construction project. In the middle of all that, he's faithful. Jesus, this is what he's doing. Aren't you glad there's no direct instructions from Mark 11? Not a single thing. You and I are stuck, and I love it. We're stuck looking at Jesus. And he's drawing you in. He's drawing you in. He's doing it. And the, the more you grasp of the bigger picture, wow, he's drawing you in. That's what's happening. Lastly, he draws us in by recentering our hope. Now, there's an influential book. Um, the author of uh, the Harry Potter books, the movie makers. Um, there's an there's a influential book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. Movie makers, Spielberg, they all read this book. Uh, if you're going to have a movie, you've got to have a hero in some way or another. Hero with a Thousand Faces, I've not read it, but it has this thought. A hero, Clark Kent, uh, leaves his normal world Cowboy Western, right? Just a rancher who wants to <laughs> tend to his or her own business, right? And there's the bad guys in town. Oh, boy, okay. So they, they go and deal with the bad guy. And they're reluctant, right? They're kind of reluctant to go, but they leave their normal world, right? They leave their normal world. wonder where they got this from. Well, it's the great story of the Bible. Our king... Adored in heaven, understood in heaven, perceived correctly in heaven, comes, leaves his normal world, and enters the fray. And he's come to recenter our hope. Now, all of us are hope-driven people. You have a story. Maybe it's the story of your career. Maybe it's the story of your money. Maybe it's the story of your, I don't know, how handsome you are. I don't know. Whatever your story is, um... You have a story, and you're going to defend the hope of your story. You're going to defend. If you're the hero of your story, then you're going to be defensive. If you're the, if you're the center of your story, then you're going to be a narcissist. Uh, and it's very, very hard to get anyone to change the hope and just look at the Pharisees. Their hope was in a religious obedience and controlling people. The, the Sadducees, they were just like the, the holy temple family, and all they wanted was just a, a well-run temple. That's all they lived for. And Jesus came and said, actually, this is all meaningless. And your heart is far from God. You're a whitewashed tomb. None of your outwardness works at all 
and he denied their righteousness, and they killed him for it. And what was he messing with? He was messing with their hope. And so we need complete revamping. Pastors, folks in the church, we all have thoughts about hope. We're thinking about our hope. And we need our little hope expanded because we need to be connected to the great hope that God has for us in Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11 spoken to a defeated generation, says, I have plans for you to give you a future and a hope. Of course, that will be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus carries this future and hope with him as he travels into Jerusalem. Hope relates to just about every aspect of our life. And, and, he, and Christ, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working to get us back into the true story. Uh, in fact, it has to do with our good, the good things we do. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece, one translation says. You're a, you're a masterpiece. How about that? God is so committed to your hope, he's restoring you to purpose. You're created in Christ Jesus so that you can do good things that he planned for us long ago. And so we're connected to the one who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We're part of that story, and he's now working from heaven through his spirit. And he's working in the good things you do. They've been ordained. Hope relates to our sense of shame, the sense that we don't belong. We, are, we have a sense that we, we just are not enough. Perhaps you feel that way. There's something wrong with me. Guilt has a lot to do with our deeds. The sense is sort of like who, shame is something like who I am. I'm unclean. I'm outside the temple. I, I, I can't, I can't, um, I can't ever be accepted I'm never really really able to let my guard down if people really knew who I was they wouldn't ever want to be my friend 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him that's a hope soaked verse and that addresses our shame it's not it's not an easy thing to overcome a sense of shame. Jesus is not our model so much as our substitute. He became sin so we might we might notice him. See, we might notice him. This is the week that he becomes increasingly more silent because he becomes representatively guilty. He represents us. And an honest criminal in court should be quiet. If they truly are guilty, they have no defense. Well, Jesus takes on our sin as if he were guilty, but he's not. And that's why he's silent before those trials. Largely, he speaks at times. He took our shame. He became sin. We were brought in. It's not some abstract thing that happens some theological chalkboard somewhere this is real stuff and he was brought in excuse me he brings us in but he was be made to become sin another way of putting that is he was excommunicated he was banished from the people of god banished from the city you don't even deserve to die within the city gates oh and he came to to quench all that all those impulses of our 
of our shame. And he's also, he also came to, to help us die to our own righteousness. My righteousness is not my reputation. My hope is not in my achievements or the perfectly designed life I might want. He came, oh, he came to give you freedom. He came to give you the hope of freedom and how quickly our joy is lost. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Legalism played a central role in the crucifixion of Christ. And he draws us in, recentering our hope because we have the Spirit abiding in us as a treasure. We have this treasure, 2 Corinthians 4, in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's hope. That's hope. What's the treasure? The treasure is the presence of the Spirit. We face trials, hardships, difficulties. Wow. He's our high priest who even to this day communicates hope to our hearts for his atonement applies to us continually. Do you feel that there's so much to keep track of in your life? Do you feel that the focus is upon you and all the instruction you must manage, uh, biblical or otherwise? Do you feel such little grace in you? Remember from last week, Samuel Rutherford's uh, counsel, where he said that we are not to despise the little grace we feel, the little warming of the heart we feel, the cold-heartedness perhaps we feel, for it's here that God is working. We are the ground in which Jesus is working. He soweth his living seed, and he will not lose his seed our spoilt works, as I said last week, his, our losses, our deadness, our coldness, our wretchedness are the ground which the good husbandman laboreth. Just watch Jesus. Just keep watching him. Watch him when your heart is cold. Watch him when your heart is dead. Watch him when you don't want to. Just say, Jesus, I'm here to watch you. Do your work in me. And he will. He will. He will be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you can overcome our modern era of distraction. You know how to get the, the attention of the human heart. You know how to lift cold hearts out of deadness. You know us, Lord. We love us. And we, we know that you have your spirit in us reviving us. So we love you, Lord. Help us to rest in you. We just watch Jesus today and his faithfulness and his, and his pointing us to what to love. Oh, Father, we thank you. Thank you for rekindling hope in us. Help us speak words to our spouse that are hopeful. Help us speak words to our co-workers that are seasoned with grace. Help us, Lord. We love you in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us continue in worship. We ask that you would say aloud, I believe it is the Apostles' Creed.